Would you pray with me? God, we, just, we thank you that we're, what we are celebrating here today. It's not a man's story, but it's your story. We're not talking about a group of believers that believed in some philosophy or some abstract concept, but ones that believed in you, and that's the reason that we're here today, 2,000 years later, still telling your story. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple weeks ago, in the introduction to one of the sermons, it was mentioned that perhaps one of the better apologetic methods, one of the, uh, I guess, uh, best evidences that we have that our faith is real, that it's true, that it's valid, that it's something that we should put our faith in, is in its ability to transform a life, to radically and dramatically take someone from a point of disbelief and utter rebellion, and then to move them over here where they do see God now, and God begins to work in their lives. We see it take people who, if God is over here, they are way over here, and have even turned their back on him, and they want nothing to do with him. And then God reaches down and gets a hold of them. And the next time we see him, we see him over here. And for us who are Christ followers, we, can, we know what's going on. We know what happens because it's happened in our own lives as well. We know that God has gotten a hold of them, and we know that a miraculous event has taken place. But to the world outside who's looking in, who don't understand what's happening, they see this Christ follower, this man they once knew, and they look at him and they say, that's not him. That is not him. I, I don't know what's going on, but I knew him 10 years ago. I knew her two years ago. I knew him a month ago, and whatever's going on, I, maybe he's acting, I'm not sure. And you know, if you're a new Christ follower, for your old friends to uh, accuse you of acting, perhaps that's a good thing. And you've got the rest of your life to prove to them that you're not acting, that in fact the God of heaven has indwelt you. And that's, that's really what we see with the man that was depicted up here on the stage today, Saul of Tarsus. You see, Saul was a bad guy. I mean, we really can't say anything other than that. He was truly wicked. Just consider the first scene that we see um, where Saul kind of makes his way into the Bible, his introduction, if you will. He's standing there. He's in amongst a group of men. He's a young man at this time. And you've got these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders that have pulled this young Christ follower by the name of Stephen out. And they are going to kill him simply because he claimed to follow Jesus Christ. And here's Saul. He's standing here. He's looking on uh, at the scene. And in Acts 8.1, we're told of what he thinks about what's going on. It says, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And to really grasp what's going on here, I want us to kind of think about this scene for a moment. Here you've got this young man, Saul, standing here fixing to watch this, uh, this Christ follower being killed for his faith. And I can see Paul, my imagination goes wild sometimes, but I can almost see Saul standing there and he's looking down at Stephen as Stephen's looking up. And Saul's looking at him and thinking to himself with kind of a, a smirk on his, face, on his face and saying, Stephen, <laughs> so I'm the one that's got this wrong. We're the ones that don't understand what Moses was saying. We missed it. <laughs> Stephen, it looks like you're the one that's catching rocks in the face. Stephen, it looks like you're the one that's about to die. Where is this Jesus of Nazareth that you said rose from the dead? Where is this God-man that you say you're putting your trust in? Because it looks like he's failed you now, Stephen. Where is he? 
And if this wasn't enough, if it wasn't enough for him to watch an innocent man die for his faith, he then decides to make it his mission to try to eradicate what he considered a heretical sect, the way, which is an ancient term for the Christian church. And he goes around and he's gathering up these men and women who simply claim to be Christ followers. They're proclaiming the message. They're identifiable. He knows where they are. He knows who they are. He grabs them up. He throws them into prison. He's trying his best to stamp out Christianity. He's doing it in his hometown, and he decides, you know, that's not quite enough either. I think I'm going to take this show on the road. And he gets a band of men together. He gets ready to take off to Damascus. And while he's on the way to persecute believers in other cities, he's talking it up. I mean, he's really, really fired up about what he's going to do. It says in Acts 9-1, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. I think when we hear that today, I think we associate the word threat with something a little more idle than what he really meant. I think what we need to understand is that when he's threatening to murder them, this is not some guy that just hates them and he's talking about it. This is a guy that had the will, he had the desire, and he had the authority to actually act on what he was going to say. And we can safely assume that he would have carried it out had it not been for the intervention of God in his life. He was so bad, in fact, that in, later in his life, after he had came to Christ, Speaking to a young pastor whom he was mentoring by the name of Timothy, he even says this to him in 1 Timothy 1.15. says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I, Paul, I am the worst of them all. You see, it would truly be a stretch for us to call Saul anything but evil if this is where his story stopped. If this is all we knew about Saul, he would have died that way. We may have associated him with someone, um, perhaps someone who's caught up in radical Islam or some of the cultic movements you see going around today where they claim to be Christ followers, they claim to be um, speaking for God and really all they're doing is protesting and, um, at funerals and whatnot. Um, and the only reason they don't take it any further is legally they cannot do it. That's kind of the guy Saul was. But thank God that's not where God left him. Because you see, on his way to Damascus, Saul was going. He had a purpose. He had an intent. He was going to persecute the church. He was going to pursue Christ followers, imprison them, and put them to death if necessary. But you see, while he was on the way to Damascus, Saul wasn't the only one pursuing. The God of heaven was pursuing Saul. And while Saul was going... To bring death and destruction, Jesus Christ was coming to Saul to bring him life. And they met on that road. And I love this, this interchange in scripture. I love this scene because I think we can learn a whole lot about God from this. Saul, on his way to murder, is confronted by Jesus Christ. Jesus looks down and he looks at him and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's a good thing for Saul that it was Jesus and not me, or one of us perhaps, because we would have been more like, Saul, you're dead, that's it, you're too bad, you're gone. But no, he doesn't. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that's kind of a weird statement if you think about it, because Saul wasn't really 
persecuting Jesus. He thought Jesus was dead. He didn't. He didn't think nothing about Jesus. He was concerned about his followers. And I think from this statement made by Jesus, we can really see how seriously God takes the suffering of his children. So much so that he counts it as his own suffering. We can also see that no matter where we are, where we have been, what we may have done, God, in fact, still pursues us and not the other way around. You know, for me, there's really tremendous hope in this passage. The fact that God does pursue us, pursues men like Saul. And then on that road, he doesn't just leave him there. He transforms his life. And we go from seeing a man named Saul to a man named Paul. And the difference is more than just one letter. You see, we see the Saul in Acts 9-1 who is willing to kill the church to the Paul who in his letter to the church in Colossae and 1 Colossians 1.25 would say, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. He goes from a murderer to a servant. We know Saul had it made before his conversion. He was a Pharisee. He was highly educated. He had notoriety. He was respected by people. He was a Roman citizen by birth, something that was much coveted back in that time. He had it all. People looked to him for guidance, and they saw him as being, you know, way up here, one of the social elite. Today, perhaps we might think of him as a senator or something, um, something to that level. And then Christ intervenes in his life, and he changes. And we see him go from being way up here to being a Christ follower. He demonstrates what we today might consider a reckless abandonment of his old life. We would have saw him and thought, man, that guy's crazy. He's given up everything. And in fact, he was. His losses, he wasn't a Pharisee anymore. All the power he had in Israel, gone. Everything, his wealth, we see him making tents later just to make ends meet. Gave it all up to follow Christ. His gains, well, for us who are Christ followers, you know, we know that what he gained was so much more than what he lost. But from the world looking in, looking at it externally, just at Paul the man instead of Paul the Christ follower, he gained nothing. He lost everything. In fact, if we were to say that he gained anything, he gained a few beatings. He gained being mocked at and made fun of, being called a fool. That's what he gained when he started following Christ. But I think it's important that we not only look at Paul. He's not our only example. God used him in a particular way, and as such, we hear his name a lot because, just because he was the first missionary, he was an apostle and all these things. But he's not the only one in the story. You see, in the last episode, we saw the beginning at the day of Pentecost of the church. A spark was set that quickly grew into a flame that today, 2,000 years, has not been extinguished yet. And in the midst of its beginnings, right there at the beginning, when it's all getting started, all the powers in the world, it seemed, was coming against it to try to stop it, to try to stamp it out. Yet, 
we know that it grew and it was growing significantly. We have to ask ourselves, what's going on? You know, I mean, we think about men like we saw up here today, like Stephen. We see Stephen, a young Christ follower. He goes and he takes the message to people. And today, if you just read the sermon, a lot of people might look at it and they say, uh, you know, that's Stephen. He's being kind of judgmental there. He's, he's being kind of condemning, isn't he? Is he not? I mean, look what he's saying. No, he wasn't. He was bringing a message of life. If they had listened to him, there was salvation in his message. He was trying to reach them with the gospel. And the thanks that he gets for it is they get angry at him for speaking words and performing a few miracles that they grab him up and they drag him out. And they begin to stone him. They begin to kill him for what he believed in. And if you think that perhaps his sermon, it's in Acts 7, if you want to read it later, if you think his sermon's condemning, if you think that's the attitude a Christ follower has, I think you should really look at what Stephen then does. At these men who we would consider our enemies, they're stoning us to death, you know. We wouldn't be very happy with them, I don't think. But Stephen, instead of taking sort of the human stance, cursing them, trying to get that last word in before they kill him, he draws his last breath, and with it, he uses it to say, to shout, is what it says in Acts 7, 66. It said he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. I think we've got to ask, what, what would cause a man to say something like that? What would cause a man to do something like that? These guys hated him. They hated him so much they were willing to kill him for what he believed. And then we see a man like James. James is told, hey, quit preaching the gospel. We're not going to tell you again. Then they catch him again, preaching the gospel. And they say, hey, we're going to put you in prison. They put him in prison. He gets out, preaches the gospel. We mean it this time. If you don't stop, this time we're going to beat you. Takes the beating, continues spreading the gospel. Is aware of Stephen's own death, continues spreading the gospel. And what we see ultimately happen with him is Herod finally gets fed up and kills him in Acts 12. Why? Why are these men and so many others during this period so willing to give of themselves to die? Why is it that the church can possibly survive in this hostile environment? How is it possible that we're even still here today? And I think Paul's former professor, a man by the name of Gamaliel, has the answer. He says in Acts 5, the Jewish leaders of the day were trying to figure out just what they were going to do about this group of Christians because they're doing everything they could to stop them and it's not working and in fact they're growing. And as they're discussing it, this man Gamaliel gives them some very good advice. He says, some time ago there was that fellow, Thetis, who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all of his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the end of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The answer as to why the church of Jesus Christ is here today, why it wasn't stamped out then, 
is quite simply because it is of God. Our focus is on Him and not on ourselves. You know, today, you can't deny that the church still exists, so people try to explain it, and I understand a lot of people strive for rationalistic um, explanations for what's going on. And one common one you might hear is, well, you know, Wes, the church, okay, yeah, it's still here. We see it, whatever. But, you know, if you study cultural anthropology, you'll see that a group in crisis, which the church was, I mean, if you look at it, what all they were going through, a group in crisis tends to bond together due to the crisis. For instance, if you look at tribes that practice... um, sort of a rites of passage for their young boys, you'll see these young boys being thrown out in the wilderness, and they grow together as a group due to the necessity of the situation. And that's what you see happening in the church. The difference, however, is that these people in the church, these women and men that were dying for their faith and being put in prison for their faith, they weren't being forced into it. James could have shut up. He could have quit talking, and it would have been done. Saul could have ignored everything and it would have been over with. We know the Romans would far rather have somebody recant or take back what they said than they would to have, uh, to have killed them. But instead, time and time again, they chose death. What's going on? Obviously, they're not thinking about themselves if they're willing to die for this message they're bringing. Their focal point was not on themselves. It was rather but rather it was on Christ and on his resurrection. And we have to remember, this group of people, while some there did believe in the resurrection, others knew of the resurrection. They actually saw it. John, in his first letter, in 1 John, he writes, not only did we see the guy, we touched him. There, we were right there. He was alive, another man that suffered great persecution. And because of that, because of where their focus was, They were not so concerned about themselves. The external things in their lives didn't seem to matter as much. Paul gives us another good example. Paul was so others-focused, he was so concerned about other people that we see later in his life, he says, I wish I could give up my own salvation if it were possible. It's not, but if it were possible, I wish I could give up my own salvation for the Jewish people. Remember, these are the people that rejected him and hated him. And he's saying, I'll give myself so that they can be saved. The Romans, the ones that would ultimately kill him, he wanted so bad to go that he didn't go on a missionary journey like he had planned to do, but rather he went in chains, basically signing his own death warrant to get the gospel message to a group of people who were going to kill him. Their mentality was that of service and selfless acts. It's obvious from the lives they lived. They really had a me-for-the-church mentality rather than a church-for-me mentality. A church-for-me mentality would not have held up under the pressure that they were under. They understood the basic elements of what makes the church, which is, one, knowing him, Christ, through first salvation and then deeper in discipleship and making him known evangelism. It's that second step they were dying for, to get the message out so others that might know him. So what? I mean, that was 1,900 years ago. What does that really have to do with us today? What can we 
the church today gain from that? I mean, we look at the church, the Western church, persecution does still exist, just not here. And we say, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of differences. We're not persecuted. Like I said, that's true. You might get made fun of school or something like that, but somebody might reject your message, but they're probably not going to stone you for it. But there still is external forces coming against us that's trying to get us to stop. Whereas they had persecution back then, today we have a me mentality. We have consumerism. We have this mindset that life is all about me and my ends something that can very quickly render the church ineffective. Because you see, when I'm focused on me, I lose sight of he, of Christ. And when I lose sight of Christ, I lose sight of the we, us, the church, the body. We must be inwardly focused. The way we will overcome the obstacles we have in front of us is the same way that the persecuted church 1,900 years ago overcame the obstacles that came against them. And it's through keeping ourselves focused on Christ, what he said and what he has done. I think in closing, and Nate and the band can come on up, I think we need to really look at our prime example. I think we need to consider what it is we call ourselves. At Highland, you'll hear Christ follower a lot. In other places, you might hear Christian a whole lot or the church. And basically, basically what that is, what it boils down to, is we're a group of people who put our faith and trust in Christ and Him alone, and we're now seeking to be Christ-like, to be more and more like Him. And He gives us the best example. Saul, Stephen, all of those great examples. But if you want a really good one, I think we look at the life of Christ who being very God, stepped out of heaven into this earth. He didn't come as a king, though that would have been an act of service in and of itself, leaving heaven even to come to earth as a king. In fact, many rejected him because he was not the king they were expecting. But he came and he lived, not in wealth, but in poverty. He came and served his entire life. Many examples can be given of his service, one of the greatest ones, I think, is he's, on the night before he was to provide the sacrifice, before he was to fix a problem that he did not create, before he was going to give his own life to show us, or not to show us, but to save us, he gets his disciples together, what was going to make up a big part of the leadership in the early church. And he brings them in. And then he takes the lowest posture possible that a servant can take, and he begins to wash their feet. We see him wash the feet of a man who sometime before had said, let us go up with him that we may die. But when it came down to it, he would even reject the resurrection. He said, I will not believe until I see it. And Jesus knew what the reactions would be. Then he washes the feet of a man who says to him, I'll die with you. I will go with you until the death. When it comes time to make good on his promise, he becomes focused on himself. And he denies Christ, not once, but three times. And this, this is the most important one, I think. We see him wash the feet of a man to serve a man who in just a couple of hours 
would be standing in a garden with a garrison of troops behind him and the temple guard saying, that's the man, that's Jesus of Nazareth, that's the one you paid me to betray. That's what service is. I think the question we should consider is our focus Christ or is it on ourselves? And if it is on Christ, is there anyone we're not willing to serve? You see, great examples of service in the church. Are we willing to serve those on the fringes of society? To put ourselves below them is what it means to serve. Are we willing to serve those who may even perhaps hate us?